0: Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and society, along with a variety of other topics related to the ancient world, as well as relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I am a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. I do want to remark that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. Throughout my career, and especially in recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of the ancient Egyptians through my lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances on podcasts. History is relevant to today's world. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kind of deep dives into history that are not always possible in those more limited formats. Hi, I'm Kara Cooney, and welcome to our first ever podcast Um, in my garage with tools and things behind me, and paintings and my son's drum set. So, welcome to the fantasy that is Los Angeles. Um, I'm here with Jordan Galzinski, and we're going to be talking about all things ancient Egyptian, all things human social systems. Uh, I study a lot of different things. I study gender and power, I study coffin reuse. I, look at, I like to look at the way um, ancient worlds are reflected in the modern world and how you can see uh, between both, which um, seems to piss a lot of people off. So we'll be touching a lot of third rails in this in, in this podcast and in these discussions. Yep. And um, you may know me by books that I've written, like When Women Ruled the World and before that, The Woman Who Would Be King. And I have a book coming out soon called The Good Kings absolute power in ancient Egypt and the modern world, which is touching all kinds of third rails. So that'll be fun.
1: Which will be the focus of later. Yes, episodes, yes. So. yes.
0: But um, let's hear from Jordan.
1: Hi, I'm Jordan. Um, I'm an early career scholar here at UCLA, working with material culture, the oh so sexy topic of fashion. We'll probably touch upon that at some point in the later episode. Um, but we're here to talk to you about you know a variety of topics, including the latest Twitter, academic Twitter drama, um you know the latest trends what's going on in current news you know bringing the past to life um you know all this stuff isn't happening in a vacuum where you know all the history has an afterlife and
0: and that's why it's called afterlife so let's see, can, what, let's see what we can let's see we can put together <laughs> um so the topic today jordan is yes. what
1: so we're going to be talking today about your recent publication um coffin commerce so have it, you should buy it. It's a really great book. Um, We're going to be touching upon a couple different topics, and including, pull it up, um, looking at, you know, some basic background. So first, I guess we should introduce the topic of coffins in general, if the audience doesn't know. Um, When do we see, you know, when we think of ancient Egypt, we think of maybe pyramids, mummies, things like this. But coffins are one of the most ubiquitous pieces of material culture that we have, you know, preserved or preserved for us. Um, so how do we how do we work with this material? How, I guess, taking a step back, when do we first see coffins appearing in ancient Egypt?
0: Is it through Can I start with something else first? Yeah. Okay. So I want to start with a dissertation defense of a student who will go unnamed, not because her dissertation is bad in any way, but because there was a professor in that defense who said, Oh, and I can't do the accent because I'll (laughs) give away who the professor was. And so that professor said, Oh my God, not another coffin study, please. This is so done, done, done. And And I got my back up a little bit, I was a little upset because Mm -hmm. to me, coffins are social documents, they are ways of looking at an individual male, an individual female, sometimes an individual child, and looking at social history through the lens of the individual, because a coffin can tell you about social place, it can tell you about religion and religious knowledge, how deeply read they are into a particular system, how much they know about the the more esoteric kinds of of texts and and knowledge, a uh, coffin can tell you about trade uh, in in the the world generally it can tell you about crisis and collapse because mm-hmm. I study coffin reuse and if you're taking grandma out to put in mama then something's wrong with your with your economy because you don't have access to to resources to make a new coffin it tells you about social competition uh, there are all kinds of things that you can learn about coffins so. Coffins are means of looking at people. Mm-hmm. And that's why coffin studies, in my opinion, are so incredibly important. And that's why I I give it the I, I don't know, my whole, my some, whole damn career. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
1: So for your recent book for coffin commerce, you're looking specifically at coffins from the Ramazid period, mm-hmm. which is spanning rough dates
0: we can 19th 20th give... dynasty rough dates oh please do it for me you know I hate dates
1: I'm not good at dates either we'll <laughs> put them in the episode the episode notes we'll have all the dates you can check we'll put sources and dates and in we... episode notes but you know post King Tut post Akhenaten yeah. Ramses Seti Ramses like late 13th height.
0: century yes, BCE late 13th. to around a thousand thousand BCE if we're gonna go. if we're gonna do dates and rough dates. For those of you who are like you should be able to do dates absolute dates are bullshit it's made up, and right? it's totally a made up thing and absolute dates change all the time, and I believe that we should engage more in uh, relative dates and relative dating is the way to go and all of these things change so. essentially
1: we're spanning you know post Akhenaten, tight height of the Egyptian empire abroad think Ramses through to the decline, you know, the late bronze age collapse, sea peoples, all this type of stuff. This is the, the span of time we're working within.
0: Which is a great span of time because mm-hmm. one, it's the only time period when the ancient Egyptians are writing shit down about coffins, prices, how they were made, orders that they're getting. Um, you don't have any things written down about reuse, but they're actually writing things down about coffins. So I get receipts and workshop records and all that kind of stuff. And second, it's a time period when you, you see like, a, a big rise in purchasing, and then kind of a, mm-hmm. a collapse. So everything's going great in the days of Ramses the Second, Ramses the Great. Everyone's able to—well, not everyone. The top five percent, because only five percent of people yeah. get a coffin. Don't forget that. Um, but people are are able to buy coffins and able to fund, and then that all falls down. Yeah. So the reuse starts as soon as the 20th yep. dynasty starts, coffin reuse starts. And it's, a, it's really instructive to be able to see that, that kind of bell curve, mm-hmm. if you will, in time.
1: So yeah. yeah, so overall coffin commerce, we're following kind of the, the um, lifespan of a coffin, right? Mm-hmm. Some, from commissioning to maybe even felling the tree, carpentry, all this stuff, to commissioning of the coffin by um, an individual, all the work and artisanship that goes into making it. A funeral and then the afterlife of it of being reused and re-commodified in the market in some way. So the-
0: and then we're going, yeah, re-commodified in the market by yeah, us. By, yep. um too and being put mm-hmm. in a museum and being consumed um by us as well. And sometimes the mummies being consumed in museums in addition, which is mm-hmm. a hot topic of its own. Yep.
1: Yeah, that's a whole different that's a whole other episode.
0: Um but Jordan to start with the felling of the tree, I wish I could tell you and this is um
1: <laughs> where are the trees? Where have, are the trees? I have it I
0: have it in here. I say can we talk about wood, <laughs> um, cedar, um, symbolism? Well, these 19th and 20th dynasty coffins, only one out of mm-hmm. about 100 is made out of Which cedar. Which is the one you
1: mentioned. Henut Mehi, Henut
0: in yeah. mm-hmm. whose who's set is in the British Museum. Yeah. And you can go and visit her. Um, I don't know where her mummy is. I don't think her mummy's in the British Museum, but her coffin set is. Um, but she has I'm an outer
1: mummy paint. I don't. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Um, mummies are difficult because mummies are often removed from the coffins in which they were placed and were sent to anthropological museums Mm -hmm. or to other kinds of museums and then museums that considered themselves antiquity museums or art museums that didn't have didn't want the mummy on display and so didn't have that Um, so I don't think the mummy is on display in the British museum but anyway Henut Mehit's coffin set has an outer coffin made of cedar and other than that it's all acacia,
1: mm-hmm. sycamore. So local wood varieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And um, some Christ thorn and some, some other kinds of wood. But what we don't know, and something that people who really get into coffins and carpentry and craftsmanship like go crazy for, is where the hell are they making all of this wood? And when the Bronze Age collapse really starts to hit mm-hmm. in Dynasty 20, where, where did the wood used to come from mm-hmm. that has now been shut down? Yep. And there are ideas that come from texts of much later, like 25th, 26th dynasty and into the Ptolemaic time period of stands of trees, cultivation of trees, mostly in the Delta. Mm -hmm. And that this for coffin production or for for whatever, for furniture, coffins, whatever, whatever, and that these stands of trees were going gangbusters and everything was functioning in the days of Ramses the Great. Mm -hmm. Then you get civil war at the end of the 19th dynasty, which would have shut all of that down and you get um, the, all of the other sea people's invasions and other things in, in the 20th dynasty yeah. and so the trees I, either the stands are burned
1: well I was wondering or, too, if you use the trees for you know armor yeah
0: tree like weapons not making
1: furniture anymore you yeah to use it to make weapons and bow and arrows and javelins and all these things
0: and the boats, other boats the other thing boats yes the other thing to keep in mind is that the bronze age collapse is this large social problem mm-hmm. that the ancient Egyptians are dealing with and it is you're marshalling the wood towards other things but also there's big economic shifts there's grain inflation which mm-hmm. means the ancient Egyptians aren't able to grow their grain the way they were before so if they're not able to grow their grain the way they were before then their their cultivation of these trees is probably going to be made problematic as well yeah so wood is an issue the and lack topic. of wood is a uh, yeah yeah
1: where were the do? trees
0: this brings up another interesting point which is that most of the work that i deal with and so many other egyptologists deal with is from the south because in this time period of the 19th and 20th dynasties the south was kind of in a kind of cocoon mm-hmm. right where the, if the sea people's invasions Shuffle. are coming or the libyans are coming from the west thebes is kind of able to circle the wagons and keep themselves mm-hmm. safe and able to continue their society their temple institutions all kinds of things are able to keep going in the theban region and in the north, it's a it's a different question. So much of the evidence comes from the south and not as much from yeah. the north.
1: See that common, I think, through a lot of people's research. My own included, where it's all southern Theban, because it's what we have left. So Well,
0: environmentally, environmentally, even if you compare Thebes and and Amarna, mm-hmm. right? Which are not that far away. Amarna is practically Cana Bend, it's a little yeah. north of it, but it's practically yeah. there. But it's so much more acidic in the, the ground. The coffins don't last; yeah. they're not—they don't survive. Whereas you have coffins from Thebes that are three thousand, four thousand mm-hmm. years old, survive perfectly yeah. in the in the ground, um, directly in contact with the ground, mm-hmm. with no problem. Yeah. So, yeah, it yeah, makes me the whole
1: while reading through this, I kept thinking like, what was going on? Other places, you know, like presumably there's these workshops also happening in at Memphis in the mm-hmm. north, and mm-hmm. and thinking about how many coffins are made per year and how many tombs are commissioned per year and what was going on in the north? Was it a similar higher level of, you know, mm-hmm. production, all these types of things and thinking about um, you have just such a skewed little picture yeah. that we latch on to.
0: I do have an article about the northern coffins, uh, which is in a festschrift. A festschrift is a German word for celebration writing, which means that when somebody retires, you you put together a book of all of their different um, Interest and people submit articles based on their different interests. And I have an article about northern coffins of the 19th and 20th dynasty that is in the Funvalsum Festschrift. And you should be able to find that uh, on my webpage, but we'll put that in the show notes.
1: Sure. Yeah. I want to take it back a step again, okay. talking about objects and how yeah. we study objects in the past. So you start off. Coffin Commerce was saying that, you know, Egypt is best known for its stuff and its obsession with stuff. Yeah. It's like, is this an innate human thing that we like to hoard goods, right? Like what other animal do we know like hoards goods it's- like we do?
0: it's what makes us human um, our obsession we, with stuff our obsession with stuff and even as hunter gatherers, mm-hmm. we would adorn our bodies and take the stuff with us
1: even. pre-human mm-hmm. pre-modern human
0: leave stuff in places come back to mm-hmm. that stuff i'm not saying that chimpanzees and gorillas don't use tools we know now that they can and i think even I don't know. There, there the are other like I think tools bees use tools or something. There are some insects that have been like a lot tools. of birds. Not an entomologist. Birds use tools. We birds. shouldn't talk about animals. Let's keep to humans. Yeah. I'm going to get myself into trouble. But it is a quintessentially human thing, um, and the stuff part I think is this is really interesting because it makes Egyptology what it is. Mm-hmm. You know that it makes it much harder to do what we do because of the amount of stuff yeah, that we, we have, have to, to commit through. to memory, to know where it is in a museum, to know um, how to date it. This statue dates, to Amenhotep up the third, early rain or late rain? Oh, I can tell by the big eyes which that it's style? late rain. You know, which style, which exactly. Um, and what temple was it from? And these kinds of things we can actually discuss. But that's because Egypt's geography, Preserves the stuff, particularly the Theban geography, mm. but the Saqqara geography as well, and that's in the north. If you have a climate that can preserve the human flesh of the body, that will help a culture invent something like the mummy. You don't have the mummy in Italy or in in Mesopotamia mm-hmm. or Greece or ancient China. Actually, ancient China you do, but in, it, yeah, but yeah. yes, but often mercury
1: yeah it's um, preserved it's a process yeah. Um,
0: Yes, but but this kind of geographic uh, impetus to create is is very interesting. So the stuff, the idea that the ancient Egyptians were hoarders—oh, firework! Um, we're, we're outside after all, you guys. So um, hopefully there won't be any more.
1: But I think it goes back to your your inclusion of this theory of how the stuff also reflects back onto us that mm-hmm. we have actually this really intimate relationship with in- inanimate objects yeah. that we give human qualities because of the materiality of the object itself it reflects back onto us and how we use it and how we have this relationship that we give humanity to it's animals in- to pets to to clothes right this is all grandma's we
0: become like hoarders yeah and it it's we an albatross this sentiment-
1: truss- sentimentalness too yeah. and everything
0: it's an albatross around our own necks mm-hmm. though because as you know if you go and talk to an archaeologist who's working in ancient Greece or in Mesopotamia or ancient China for the most part, they're working more with theory. Yeah,
1: they don't have the stuff. They
0: don't have <laughs> the stuff. And we are accused of not working with theory have because we have too much stuff and we have to catalog it and we have to deal with it and, and work through all of that stuff. It's now very fashionable to work with theory, mm-hmm. but I noticed that in a lot of the scholarship, people pick a theory as if it's brand new and then present it in article X, Y, or Z in, in concert with a whole lot of stuff. And then it becomes confusing in its own way. So it's the curse and the blessing of Egyptology. For instance, if you're a Romanist, and you want to work with ancient economies, or even discuss how um, Roman provincial politics worked, then you're going to want to actually look at ancient Egypt, or Egyptian Roman material, because that's where things are preserved. Or like,
1: you know, Greco-Roman stuff, they have a bunch of texts, but not a bunch of maybe the other stuff that we have Mm -hmm. you know materials that would degrade in the ground um so a lot of things are much more text heavy and text-based um versus we have everything
0: yeah so stuff is a big thing it's um curse and a blessing and yes
1: so then why did you pick coffins as your focus of looking at how to
0: look at people why coffins because there's if there's an obsession an Egyptian obsession with stuff Mm -hmm. there's also an Egyptian obsession in our eyes and maybe in their eyes with death and so I start the book with a discussion of and this isn't this is a ubiquitous Egyptological debate were the ancient Egyptians obsessed with death Mm -hmm. or were they obsessed with continuing life and and that continues on and on and the the stuff makes it seem like the ancient Egyptians were trying to take it all with them which only the top 2% were, but it gives the impression of a culture that is materialistic,
1: mm-hmm.
0: hoarding, um, primitive because they can't understand that they can't take it all with them. And these are the kinds of assumptions that we as specialists of the ancient Egyptian world have to fight against and nuance and, and work with.
1: Jumping ahead of it, but you make the analogy throughout about weddings, modern mm-hmm. weddings. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how the fact that we don't have a lot of evidence for Egyptian weddings being this kind of big pomp and circumstance, I'm sure they happened, but we don't have a lot of good evidence to say that they were a thing.
0: It's a typical Egyptological thing to say, oh, the ancient Egyptians didn't have weddings. There's no Mm -hmm. wedding ceremony whatsoever. That can't be.
1: No, they have to have had.
0: They had to have had some sort of ceremony, some sort of a party,
1: something not like, but I think the analogy that they put all their resources like we do into maybe a wedding they put it into their funerals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like, you just pick and choose what's, you know, important for you. Maybe getting married isn't that important in the long run.
0: Well, we have a common friend, yep. Kylie, who yes. just got married, yes. right? And what did I say to them not long ago? I said, this wedding is not for you.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's for everyone around. And after having talked to her, she was like, I like, didn't get to say hi to anyone. Yeah. And like, it was like rushing around all day and all this stuff and having, we were just on the phone with my boyfriend's parents and his brother is getting married and they looked at the venue and stuff today and all this stuff. And it already is like blowing up, like, Oh, a hundred plus people and 20 grand for the venue and all this stuff. And it's like, ah,
0: I had two weddings. First one was not for me. And my mother well, I was, and I actually got, so I gotten, was wondering if in the book, yeah.
1: any of those were your weddings.
0: Cause you based them, the first ones in Texas. And I was like, is this, this I, is your wedding? So the one of <laughs> Henu Mehit that I say is, mm-hmm. is group, Oh no, no, the one of um Takai, yeah, group two. The, uh, group two. Yeah. Is um the, the big the over the top Texas, Texas yeah. wedding at a really nice Hyatt yeah. with the tiara and the false mm-hmm. hair and all and that the was of diamonds. Mm-hmm, yeah. Was a wedding I did actually <laughs> attend. And I have that in my notes. I'm yeah. like, is this your
1: wedding? Not
0: my wedding. No way would I ever do that. No way um I would never have allowed that but I did attend and anthropologically sneer yes um because that's what academics are supposed to do and and um I was like oh that's not her hair
1: Uh (laughs) that's fake hair or like um, just having like seen Kylie like you know the weeks of work well months the wedding but like the weeks of work it's prepping for a show
0: yeah prepping for a show you have to get fit you have to look good everything has to be perfected Mm -hmm. and it has to be done in a particular way um, and the photographer rushing them around to take photos
1: yeah. and document everything really you know thousands upon thousands of photos and... so
0: so in the book if you're a little confused yes. let me be clear that i compare different groups of coffins to different types of weddings and i have four different groups and the top one is like the richest of the rich yep. and i did a pierre hotel in new yep, york did with Pierre hotel
1: where yeah. it's like if you know you know if you know where this you know the designers you have to be in the know to know oh that's louboutin or you know
0: Louis Vuitton would have been too gauche that was probably too, because it's too, it's too it's much too gauche, yeah. Yeah. it would be somebody it's up something and coming. that you just you yeah. just know yeah Um. subtle yeah
1: but no.
0: and a smaller group yeah. very intimate but but very elite and and very high level, and then the second one was like the that was our Houston Hyatt yes, with, the, class. with the with the $10,000 rented jewels and. The wedding ring that cost like fifty thousand dollars probably more actually now that i think about it but it doesn't really matter but but you know very over the top but not upper crust right not like um, multi-millionaire or billionaire type people and then have it's
1: like they have the money yeah but not the like it's like the nouveau riche versus like the landed aristocracy kind of comparison of like you have the money so you can show it off but not the like class of how to yeah do it in the right way that people no, but don't know.
0: And then the the third group is like the academics or <laughs> for the ancient Egyptians, the craftsmen. And so it's, um, I, I compared it to the el Medina. Yeah. Co- well, it's the el Medina Coffins that I put in group three, and I compared it to like, what did I do a, we- a wedding like in a backyard a- wedding backyard? Yeah. wedding No, I had it in a Jamaican, cool Jamaican yes, restaurant, yes, right? Yeah, the restaurant, um, like a hole in the wall, but cool and hip kind of restaurant. She's wearing a vintage dress. Mm-hmm and yeah, it's a, just a
1: normal suit on yeah
0: yeah vintage ring all of these things normal suit and and just tried to do all of the details and then the fourth group were the coffins that are pieced together from like 100 scraps of wood that are really crappy and i compared that to the the baptist like, wedding in the church basement yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was done um, with like punch and cake yeah punch and cake and then you're kicked out after an hour and a half um, but so
1: this is still like the top 5% yes so i think is, yes we get you know, looking at this stuff, we think, "Oh, middle class, and like that's most of the population, but it's still even being the kind of shotgun wedding that's still the super super rich.
0: most ancient and Egyptians most people... were buried in a palm rib mat or some simple textile put into a group tomb mm-hmm. and buried would
1: they even have a tomb,
0: yeah, you don't maybe, maybe directly into the ground, yeah. but some sort of communal space, yeah, um yeah is it a tomb is it dug into the ground no what, what do you even say is a tomb mm-hmm. so we're really talking about the top 5% and then I separated that top 5% and when I submitted the book for peer review I had two peer reviewers come back and one said they loved the wedding analogy and it was just great and it helped them to understand what was going and thought, on yeah. and the second one was like you really need to lose this wedding analogy it's too modern and it's but I think yeah
1: <laughs> I, I think it worked you have another analogy with the kind of military-industrial complex.
0: Yeah, okay. what did you Comparison think
1: of that? Comparising Medina. So I like, I think certain nuances work, but if you take it holistically, it doesn't. But the way you use it, it works with yeah. saying that, you know, it's this, there's these groups of people who are attached to the state, mm-hmm. just like there's, you know, the military. And then you have kind of private contractors who can be contacted in by the government to make things for the, the government. Yeah, And that they're kind of secluded, they have to have top level clearance. Yeah all these things, I liked that analogy. But then I think saying like, Egypt is a military industrial, I think people could take it, you know?
0: Well, when you think about it that way though, what is ancient Egypt using as their primary weapon? And I talk more about this in my book, Good Kings, which is Mm -hmm. not out yet, but that primary weapon is an ideological propaganda that Mm -hmm. gets people to believe that if they don't believe things a certain way, do things ritually a certain way, believe that their king is their divinely inspired lord and master mm-hmm. that something bad will happen to them and so this it's a weapon part of that it's I a want weapon. A coffin and i want Why to Why do you and... think the ancient egyptians when they invented the pyramid text didn't let people have them they wouldn't write it down at first yeah. and then when they did finally write it down everyone started to grab onto that they're like fine we're going to create something else mm-hmm. And in the Middle Kingdom, you don't even have any evidence of the kings having their own funerary mm-hmm. texts because exactly. they kept it so close to the vest. Exactly. And then in the New Kingdom, they invented Book of Earth, Book of Gates, Book of Caverns, you know, oh, because yes. they needed so new stuff. so
1: confusing even for us. Yeah. By the New Kingdom, it's like an explosion of... Because
0: they needed to have new, new... awesome shit and, and to use and create and manufacture different weapons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll stand by that analogy. <laughs> but yeah,
1: I was like, yeah. I have to think through this more because I liked the comparison of like the state versus contract work. I think that was super appropriate for Dior Medina. And that's, it's not something that's until I feel like your work and pretty recently that people were talking about that Dior Medina could, that it was, that was okay for these people. It was expected for them to be doing side work. Yes. And that it wasn't something they were like sneaking around doing. Right. Like back channel. It was just, if they got done their state work, they were allowed to do other stuff.
0: So, in my first book called The Cost of Death, which is an academic tome that nobody should read, and it's like 600 pages long and difficult. But I think difficult. this book is a good. It is. It's the short, really snappy accessible version of that book. Of your, yeah. 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 But in that book, I argue for something called The Informal Workshop, which I kind of mention mm-hmm. in this book, but yeah. maybe I don't call it that, where you work for the state, but then on the side, you can work for an elite. Um, a vizier, a a treasury overseer or something, and make a coffin or tomb for them and and have side work. But the other reason I like the industrial um, complex analogy Mm -hmm. is because we we as Egyptologists have this argument back and forth about how free Daryl Medina people were. Were they watched over? Did they did they they monitor their comings and goings? Were they able to come and go from the inundation lands out into the desert? How did this work? And it, it's useful for me because people who work in the military industrial complex, from what I have seen, work for a, a private contractor or for the government, but they're controlled in ways through sometimes lie detector tests or sometimes um, just figuring out what how they might be vulnerable, um, how they might be, um, what's the word, Jordan? Um, when you're Remy, what's the word? Compromise. 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 Thank you. Um, How you might be compromised and the Daryl Medina people, they, they try to make sure that they can't be compromised and that all of their money is coming from the same people to whom they're also meant to be loyal. And that back and forth in terms of patronage was Mm -hmm. exactly what I was going for with that analogy.
1: And the presumably the people that they're doing their like side hustle for are still people within that community, right? It's not, they're not shipping out their business to so we have evidence for there's
0: argument that these Dural medina craftsmen were going all the way as far north as saqqara to mm-hmm. work in tombs up north mm-hmm. um i don't know if i buy that argument by Alanzavi, but if they did it would have still been in an elite framework that would have mm-hmm. been the same level of patronage so yep. it could work
1: yep. i like that so this kind of brings me to this idea where um you know, how do you when you were working through all this material? How did you quantify? So when you're going through the different groups, right? Mm-hmm. High elite, kind of more middle elite, lower elite, and then the have nots of you don't get a coffin. How do you quantify, you know, what's nicer you in looking at these coffins you say, Oh, Egyptian blue is really valuable. But when I believe um, uh uses it, it's like overdone and everything else. Quality like so much Egyptian is blue too, is totally gauche. Yeah. So, and then versus, you know, Henet Mehit, where it's like very nicely done, the sides are done. How did you get to this, you know, idea of what's uh, prestigious, what's valuable, um, besides, you know, the inherent value of these materials?
0: This was really hard because as archaeologists and anthropologists were trained not to make value judgments mm-hmm. about quality. And yet, I was writing this dissertation at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., where everything is about quality. Where you only get on the wall of a museum if you're a Matisse or a Van Gogh, yeah. and otherwise, forget it. You're not going to be on the walls of a museum. You're also only on the walls of a museum if you're a white male. But that's a different that's a different thing. But um, so I had to use those those two things together and understand that. A coffin, even if it's crappy and it looks awful and it just mm-hmm. has a face and the you know it's just not well done and it's pieced together from many pieces of wood, it can still be functional. It can still work. So you bring up
1: the offering bearer, the middle mm-hmm. kingdom, like you have the beautiful one with her like pleated dress, mm-hmm. and then we have the kind of ones we find in maybe lower elite tombs that aren't as pretty. Yeah. You know, we can make these value judgments. But since they work the same, yeah, like we're taught that they're functionally the same piece then why do we even need pretty things at all? Because like you can the, have the crappy one and it still functions as your offering bearer. Like, why do we need the pretty one? Because the
0: funeral is not for the dead. Yeah. The funeral is for the living. The funeral is for the living. The wedding is not for say, those I getting wed. The this. wedding is for the yeah. people giving the bride away. It is meant to manufacture social status. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's functional for the dead. Doesn't matter. Give the dead whatever they need, but to have, to have people consume it, to have people talk about it. And then
1: you put in the tomb and it's done consumption, that you have the money yeah. to just say, I bought this really yeah. nice piece and now it's gone." It's cool. Yeah, it's you're out taking of, it out of, of
0: circulation yep. and it's not something that anybody can, afford can own, to do that. yes, yep. that's um, extraordinarily wasteful and it's like burning cash, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, so these coffins, I mean, if you're gonna do it with coffins, which was your original mm-hmm. question, how do I do that? I look at all kinds of things and it's, um it's it's a really complicated uh, way of working because I have to look at the wood how many pieces of wood they're using how the wood is joined together what kind of plaster is being used if it's a crappy mud plaster mm-hmm. or we have a nice white gypsum yep. plaster over the surface. Um, then, when we're talking about the decoration is there plaster relief or not that's super mm-hmm. time consuming to do plaster relief or inlay if your inlay is it glass or is it something else every private coffin I've looked at for the 19th and 20th dynasty is only glass, glass yes. is not precious stones um, and then when you get to the draftsmanship what's the quality of line do you have just one same brush you know we're just using all the same brush that's easy you just take the same brush put in different paints is it is it many different colors of paint where you have to switch out the brush and it's more time consuming mm. I do red than I have to do blue or you bring over the red guy bring over the blue guy Whatever it's done if it's done a community or by one person. And if there's variety of lines so some thin line added after um, to, to give those added details and human beings know quality when they As see say, it, but it comes from years
1: <laughs> of you looking at these coffins and you can pick.
0: I think everybody knows quality. Even if we don't know how to, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what a Balenciaga dress looked like. But you would, but I, you would know that's expensive.
1: Yeah. Even if I, my eye always goes towards the expensive thing.
0: Yeah, I always
1: pick it, and then I'm like, "Ah, that's too expensive.
0: Yeah. But we all know it, we know how to view it. We know what symmetry is, we know what balance is, we know what a, a master craftsman, craftsman hand mm-hmm. looks like. And I say craftsman on purpose because <laughs> we don't have any evidence for crafts women. That's Jordan's work for, for fabrics and weaving where you actually do have crafts women, um, but not in this world as far as we can see. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough push and pull between quality on the one hand um me grading it. Mm-hmm. I grade it in a way yeah. and um functionality being there for any piece no matter how crappy it is.
1: Is there any accounting for personal taste? Or cause I I always come up with this in my own work, if there's like any personal preference yeah. taking up, you know, a role. And then I'm always like, no, because we're looking at things so holistically, we're taking like large data sets that we can kind of take out the idea of some personal taste and that they're kind of under the whims of whatever the presiding fashions of the time are, acting upon them, being in their social group, what's, you know. This is really hard. But also like someone has to be the mover and the shaker to be like, oh, we're now gonna do antiquated coffins and not rectangle coffins.
0: Or yellow coffins instead of black coffins. Or now we're gonna use this new pigment that's really expensive Mm -hmm. and... Which you get with Roman period Mm -hmm. or Ptolemaic, all of a sudden they've got this purple stuff going on. You're like, where did that come from? My husband and I are watching the show. We've actually watched it and have watched episodes twice now called The Great Pottery Throwdown, where Keith, what's Keith's name? Reimer Jones Jones says it has to be fit for purpose. And so if something has to be the bathroom, or anything, they have to make a sink, they have to make a pot, he's got to be fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And coffins have to be fit for purpose. And that means you can't have a whole lot of moving and shaking going on it's got to be functional you can only
1: do so much within the boundaries of still having a functional coffin even
0: if it were just the ritual itself you've got to do that ritual i grew up roman catholic right to make jesus get into that bread you've got to do it this first then this second then that third and you have to do it in the right way or he's not going to get into the bread you're not going to get your communion away for you're not going to be cleansed and all of these things won't happen magic must happen in a certain way it has to be fit for purpose the box has to hold a body so there's only so much you can do and then i'll tell you go ahead and then i'll tell you some moments where i see it
1: okay so i was gonna say first we cannot maybe take a divergent and talk about what coffins actually do
0: Mm -hmm. ritually
1: Mm -hmm. to the body like why do we need a coffin in ancient Mm -hmm. egypt why not just wrap it and put it in the ground and what what's the the coffin functioning as
0: let me get to that next because that's really interesting but But i think this goes back
1: to your theory too
0: it all it uh, all circles in.
1: upon so you, it's in this conversation oh
0: yeah so this is my big this is my big point that the object acts upon the people yeah. that the object has agency once the people create it the object then like a demon you know that you've released from hell re- then wreaks havoc upon you and you have to do what the object I think says the
1: best article i read on this is the roman toga yeah um can't think of the author. I will put it in the show notes. But it was how the toga itself, how you wear a toga, drape the toga, yeah. how your one arm is totally incapacitated. Yeah, that lent itself to how oratory began, right? So your one arm it's sitting like there this. holding the thing, and the other arm can <laughs> it can, could be why the be queen Italian, waves the way know? she but waves. But you have to this arm wow. isn't doing anything. Yeah, because the way the toga is wrapped. Yeah, how you're wearing it, and then that's how Roman oratory became. You know, you have your one hand, and it's all how you talk, how you have to stand you know, I so love it's that the same for, for for coffins.
0: So where you see innovation on a coffin is often in a place where people wouldn't see it, mm-hmm. which is interesting, mm-hmm. where people wouldn't um, be able to say you can't do that. It's not fit for purpose. And here's an example. The coffin of E.E. E. Nefertiti in the Metropolitan Museum of Art has on its inside a whole additional text in yellow over the black varnish. Mm-hmm. Very unusual. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually I don't think that kind of interior decoration is seen on any other 19th or 20th dynasty coffins It's something you see all the time in 21st dynasty coffins when coffin reuse becomes a thing they need to hide all the shit that they're doing Mm -hmm. but at this time period it's not and it's also possible though this one's a bit more of a stretch that that same coffin has weird eyes because E. was blind no (gasps) E. was blind and there's another stila that's praying to the god Amun-Re saying please help heal her blindness oh, that's awesome. and her eyes look a little weird and like, little cross-eyed like, uh,
1: like fuzzy or little, like kind it of like just looks a little, or something. A little yeah.
0: off and it might be representing what she actually hmm. looked like um that's um
1: well that goes back to the idea that people are commissioning these yeah they're not just like pre-made coffins of yeah. like idealized egyptian man idealized egyptian woman
0: you don't go to old navy yeah and, and it's not your fast and coffin you don't do that you don't go and say oh i'll take that one's for man i'll take that one and then oh, can and change five, this seven. to that. yeah no, give me no, the no. five seven man no. coffin no these are things that would have cost multiple months of salary yep. for a lower middle class if you're gonna you're a lower elite is generally the way i like to say it kind of person that uh was able to afford a coffin and they have to invest a, a whole lot
1: mm-hmm. into well, I think, that object. i think in the book you said it's you know four or five months of of a wage for one object
0: if you're a peasant farmer who's living hand to mouth there's no way mm-hmm. you can afford that kind of thing and even having a piece of fabric a piece mm-hmm. of linen to put into the ground to Those wrap around that deceased is a huge conspicuous 10, consumption seven, for them yeah
1: yeah. Yep. yeah yeah all the other stuff
0: did you hear her just throw out five to 10 Deben? So that's important. A Deben is 91 grams of copper, mm-hmm. and it's a five Deben would have bought like a typical Mesa shirt. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, like not a super fine one.
0: But it would be a a, a smooth yep. one. So it's, they even graded nefer linen. Nefer. Five grades of linen, right? Yeah. There's um, royal, nesut. Yeah. Then nefer, nefer. Then na'a. And then I don't know the other, I don't know the lower two.
1: Well, there's like the like scraps, and
0: then yeah, uh, there's four. Maybe there's four grades. I don't know the the linen. But so the start. Egyptians themselves are grading linen. If they're grading linen by thread count and how fine mm-hmm. it is, and the age of the flax itself, yep. then they're grading coffins as they watch them go by in procession, mm-hmm. and they're talking and they're discussing what's nice and what's not, mm-hmm. and that's why the coffin has control over the people. <laughs> they have to make one if they're of a certain socioeconomic class they can't get out of it.
1: But part of my one of my other favorite parts of the book was your reconstruction of the coffin coming to the, the house and, and then them negotiating the price and yeah. then you reconstructing that one ostracon yeah. um and how it would have actually went down and then oh we ended up too much money so then I'll owe you I owe you 20 Devin like later let's write it down and keep a record and all this stuff. Yeah. But just the coffin coming and everyone ooh and eyeing. What's oh, so nice? And then the neighbors are around to kind of get a glimpse and see it. Yeah. And just adding this like humanity to it, which yeah. I really appreciated. Because so we see stuff in just, you know, museum cases. Yeah. Totally devoid of context, all the other objects they would have been with.
0: The text that she's talking about is I can't remember the name of the ostracon. We will put it, it in the It was Ashmolean. Notes. Is it Ashmolean? It is an Ashmolean. Okay, that's good. And it's a really long text and mm. it's very complicated. And it's a craftsman from Daryl Medina, selling a coffin to the chief of police, to the wife of the chief mm-hmm. of police. And it's the most complicated transaction where there, there's linen involved, there's Just bunches like of vegetables, shoes. there's shoes, there's some livestock thrown some in. Copper. all Like three or four other people come yeah, into the exchange. Stuff. It's very complicated. And so I'm like, huh, how would this have worked in real life? And I set up a whole haggling mm-hmm. sort of village life to try to add, as you say, some humanity to yeah. the situation. And, and figure out how that might have yeah. worked. Yeah. That's great.
1: Because so, so, so many of those economic documents from Duro Medina are just like,
0: yeah, they're so dry. Like, what do you do yeah. with them?
1: But if you think about these are, you know, records, there was a reason they were making a record, a
0: document, yeah. keeping
1: a receipt of something.
0: But that's the kind of yeah. shit we want to know about yeah. ancient people. Like, everyone's like, how did they go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I actually don't know. I know for the Romans with the sponge on a stick, but for the ancient yeah. Egyptians, I actually don't know this. Don't but- they have
1: toilets at Menad at Habu? I remember in
0: like the palace thing, there's that thing that's labeled a toilet. I don't think it's really a toilet. And if it is, then it's like in a ceremonial (laughs) palace. I don't think it works. So I don't think we actually know how the ancient Egyptians went to the bathroom and how that worked. Um, And if they had like little chamber pots and things like that. Wow. We went off on a tangent with that one, but it's interesting, right? Um, So (laughs) those are the kinds of things we want to know. But when somebody buys something in a closed society, it's like, what'd you buy? How much Mm -hmm. did it cost? Where'd you go? Oh, what who who, you know, this is village life. These are the kinds of things we want to talk about it.
1: Because it's kind of ask what it
0: costs, judge it behind their back. mm -hmm. Did you see what she bought and how much she
1: paid? That was my favorite (laughs) when you were talking about the really nice coffin and comparing it to the Pure Hotel. Yeah. About you know, all the other people within their social group looking for oversights. Yeah. So everything is covered and done perfect, Mm -hmm. right? Because the neighbors, the people who are attending the funeral, they're looking for, oh, where was it? messed up yeah and where did they you know take the maybe cheaper route yeah and um you know where the other one from group two it's like you just like let's throw egyptian blue all over it yeah like money money money
0: it'll impress people people. would have been like that's why nouveau riche are known Mm -hmm. for putting gold all over everything Mm -hmm. and making it as ostentatious as possible because it impresses people who don't have any sort of education to know more than that so it works in coffins too And Egyptian blue is a glass. It's a frit that's ground down and put Mm -hmm. together with a binder. And it's a high cost pigment. It's a it's a multi-step production pigment. Yellow ochre, red ochre, you just pull it from the desert. Yeah, it's far away, but but it's it's easy to get. So
1: talk about Orpiment a lot, too. Mm -hmm. Where were we're they getting Orpiment?
0: I don't know, Jordan. (laughs) I think I think um, Eastern Desert. But it's I'm a, it's
1: a, just a Or if neural. it's
0: associated with natron, then it would be western desert. I don't know, but it's a natron. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a natron associated thing, but it's arsenic. Yeah,
1: let's say it's, um, it's and so if
0: it's arsenic it's it, it's mercury. It's yeah. it'll poison you and you wonder if the craftsmen who worked with these orpiment pigments actually did get sick? They must have. Um if they reached a certain age, we don't know the answer to that. And working with coffins that have been overly clean so that the varnish is taken right. off and the the orpiment is right there visible on the surface, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a safe thing. So
1: yeah,
0: I've been um, it, I've been around a lot of orpiment, but most of it is covered with varnish, which I think I is
1: a third, rather third safe. Year yet.
0: But yeah, I don't. I have to look where orpiment is from. So we'll so we'll um, we'll look it up and, it back and think that. about it.
1: When we're reconstructing a Egyptian funeral, yeah how do we see this playing out? Do we have any evidence for how these things happened? They're buying, presumably, they're commissioning the goods early on in life, pre-death, preparing yeah. for this event, Yeah. probably their whole adult lives, you know, working a lot of money. You're not just gonna throw it down at the last minute. Um, preparing a tomb. How do you see the goods? Are they being, you know, as they're being prepared, are they being like stored in the house?
0: I mean, are they being
1: stored in the tomb?
0: I mean, you're asking this because you want to know the answer, too, because we all want to know the answer, because this is the kind of thing where you have to use the object to try to get it to tell you as much as it can tell you. And it's very frustrating because rituals are not preserved. You don't have, uh, you know, you only have the knowledge that there was a concert in the 19th century before photography because somebody made a playbill about it and, mm-hmm. and stuck it up on a wall and we happen to have it preserved or somebody wrote a letter about it yeah. and discussed it the ancient Egyptians did us did a little bit more than that for us right mm-hmm. as you know there are tombs um, most of them 18th dynasty not 19th and certainly not 20th that show images of funerals and of goods in procession a whole row of guys holding Curious. a table, a chair, a bed, Chest- a headrest, oh. you know, all the stuff you yeah. would put in the tomb of the dead, a whole bunch of clothing, mm. other things. And and you, and you get an idea that part of the funeral was the parade of conspicuous consumption, mm-hmm. that it was about about showing how much you could afford and, and putting all of that stuff before people's eyes for them to consume, a kind of forced consumption, if you will, mm-hmm. a reification of who's on the top mm-hmm. and who's on the bottom of society. And then of course the Egyptians give us a little more information by talking about the opening of the mouth. So you get these mostly again, 18th dynasty, you get all of these little little cartoon scenes of step one of the opening of the mouth, use this implement. Step two, use this implement. Step three, use that implement. Touch the eyes, touch the ears, touch the nose. And so you get an idea that the coffins and the mummy Mm -hmm. were manipulated, opened, taken out, stood up. And so after they passed by people, then they were displayed in some sort of a high place with an audience down below, maybe. Music. Something, Anthers. some music, whalers. We know yeah. that they were paid performers Morners. for rich weddings. And this was very much a, a show. It was a, it was a party and it was mm-hmm. put on by the living, by the family, so they could make sure that their social place was reified. And if you think it's all bullshit, then please just have a wedding and get married and watch your family members freak out if you're not doing it the right way how according to done. them how yeah. they want it done and and all hell will break loose this is these things are a, a big deal big deal
1: and since you just touched upon the opening of the mouth i think we can go back to maybe talk about how coffins are used as like transformative machines um yeah you know newt as the womb yeah all these different ideological well this is where it's coming up play as you
0: know this is where egyptology usually goes yes. right this the is texts yeah and the magic the <laughs> text the magic they they don't go into the social discussion as much and get as anthropologically cynical about it they instead take the egyptians at their word and make it about the the ritual and say this is why coffins are there for the ritual for the awakening of the mm-hmm. dead and that's the primary purpose of it and that's why i think we think that the dead do bury themselves (laughs) that the dead planned out their own funeral that they had it all figured out when when really i would argue that a lot of that transformational aspect while it's important and is the raison d'etre in many ways for the piece it's secondary in terms of the show Mm -hmm. um Yeah, yeah but I, it, in some ways, it's like, well, then why do they have to do it right? Why does the text have to be right? Why does the magic have to be right? You could argue that, yes, it's because if you don't do the magic right, it won't happen in the way that it's meant to. But also, people will talk. I was going to say, they would know.
1: <laughs> people... like, oh, they didn't do the opening of the mouth. It's like when at a wedding and they skip something. You're like, oh, they did It's not do the, done right. The cutting of the cake scene. People like, are going to talk. They didn't, they they didn't have a first dance. Yeah. I was going to
0: say, they didn't do it the way that it's supposed to it be. And someone will say done. something
1: like, oh, why did you decide not to do that? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Hmm. So, so what most Egyptologists have focused on is the book of the dead text, which chapters have they chosen, which mm-hmm. selections of chapters? What does that mean? Oh my God, they selected this chapter part instead of that chapter part, or they made a mistake here instead of there. You and I know that when we read some of these texts on a coffin, there's mistakes, yep. they're copying them super quickly. They, they know that people aren't going to go through and read the book yeah. of the dead oh, chapter 151 the right on the type of the, yeah. on the side of the coffin. They're not going to do it. It needs to be there. And it needs to be performed but it's not something that is primary but getting back to that the coffin is meant to be a transformational device that when you put the deceased into it him or her they will be transformed into the sun god mm-hmm. into amun Ra, into osiris they are depicted on the lid with the crossed arms and certainly by the 21st dynasty but even before that in the in the 19th and 20th as as this Osirian being that has hands able to to come forth from the wrappings mm-hmm. and awaken again, the inside of a nineteenth and twentieth dynasty coffin is this thick black pitch-like substance. Yes, which you place I feel the like that's dead a hot inside, topic,
1: right? Everyone's looking into all the goo and yes. what this black goo is. And and a
0: really wonderful article just came out in um, Pinas. We'll put that in the show notes about um, this black goo or black varnish led by Margaret Serpico and John mm-hmm. Taylor, um, two really good crack Egyptologists about what's in this stuff, um, what are the different chemical components? And I'm not a chemist, nor should I be one <laughs> ever, <laughs> but I can talk about how this black shiny stuff mm-hmm. is the only black I know of that gives off, that its shame. seems to give off its own light mm-hmm. when touched by the mm-hmm. sun. That you can imagine opening up one of these coffins in this thick shiny surface when the sun hits it
1: mm-hmm. it's like
0: the black is shining that's huge that's a big deal or in a
1: dark tomb where you in a dark tomb, tomb with candlelight, candlelight or lamplight yeah. right lamplight it, just...
0: it would it would glow in yeah. a sense and that that's like a, a typical Egyptian thing
1: white linen of the yes honey.
0: and then you pour that and stuff pour over, over the white honey, linen yes. and you're making the deceased into an Osirian being mm-hmm. that will come forth from the black earth and light and black are then united as mm-hmm. one. And how clever of the ancient Egyptians to create a recipe yeah, light through
1: its visible property of shininess and not actually lightness. But it's so
0: deep black. Yeah. It's like a deep blue black. Yes. It's that dark. It just reflects. But they create this material. They mm-hmm. create this material, arguably for religious purpose, but also so they can show people. Oh, think of the first guy that had this black goo and was like, look at this stuff. Yeah. And people were like, oh my goodness, why is it shining? How is mm-hmm. the black paint it? glowing before me? This is extraordinary. And then you put the deceased inside of it and you pour all that stuff all over it. It must have seemed like it's the person inside was a divinity. Mm-hmm. And they had done that how? Materially. So then the materials have to be used again, because once you've set that bar, everyone's going to try to get to it and surpass it. Mm-hmm. And so the materials end up controlling us. Well, that
1: makes me think of, to add further credence to your, that the black is actually light. It's like Ka's outer coffin. It's covered in the black instead of the gold.
0: The 18th um, dynasty, Mary 18th dynasty coffin in Turin, Museo Ijitsu, yeah, it's covered with that black stuff. And I I don't know when this um, black varnish is first invented. I think it's pretty damn early. Mm -hmm. I think you could go back to uh, Middle Kingdom, certainly. Mm -hmm. But when is the earliest black varnish on a coffin or on a funerary object, it really takes off in dynasty 18 funerary object would be. Funerary object, when do they start pouring this black stuff all over things do you have black goo on middle kingdom coffins or on the inside can, the inside of middle. Kingdom coffins are kind of, painted yeah they're not covered they're just, with this and they're tilted
1: stuff and they have their masks on
0: right, I think
1: it'd be 18.
0: It might be 18th when all of this stuff takes off. Yeah. I mean, that's when you see it the most when that, that conspicuous consumption really, it's possible that Middle Kingdom royal coffins used it. but we, yeah, we would never know. We, don't have any of those. we would not know. So when you see it is on 18th dynasty coffins yeah. and it's um, it's a special material. And so it's a weird thing, though. 18th dynasty, they put it on the outside of the coffin yeah. so that it, in People the light it? that black is absorbing all of that light they put it on the inside too. Mm-hmm. And then in the 19th dynasty, at the end of the 18th actually and this is according to Aiden Dodson in a well known article that we can put in the show notes. Um, the yellow coffin is invented and it's a way of showing that the deceased is solar,
1: mm-hmm.
0: instead of being only Osirian. Osirian so now we're putting the solar and the Osirian together and it's all very religious and it's easy to get caught in those religious weeds but as we always say at ucla don't get caught in the religious weeds try to fly above them and see them as social competition with different people so that you if black was the thing before you want to make it fit for purpose you want to make it functional but you want to upgrade it so it's something that other people don't have and the first owners of these new yellow coffins would have been seen as having the coolest stuff ever and everyone then tried to emulate it and it it switched over fast but
1: similar I guess solution right different solutions to a similar problem of how you're trying to represent some type of ideological process yeah becoming Osiris you're becoming Amun-Ra
0: but you can only do it in that way it Mm -hmm. you can only make that change if it fits the magical ritual and is fit for purpose if it is then it seems you can go a little bit crazy like 21st dynasty coffins with they don't just have 161 and 151 chapters of the book of the dead they've got crazy stuff yes and they've got things from book of gates they've got things from umduat they've got all kinds of things but why do you think that change why go from
1: more you know kind of to the 21st dynasty where it's like let's cover
0: everything that's that's institutional and it's social and that is because when the 18th and 19th dynasty coffins were being made, the institution that was appropriate what, and that got you the farthest was the court. So you connected to the king, and the king um, gave you stuff, and you were slavish to him, and you got awesome sarcophagi and other things from the king. But you you wanted to show in your tomb your close connection with the with the family members of the royal court. Once things I know we're just gonna have to deal with planes. It's just gonna have to be the way it is because I'm right near Santa Monica airport. So this is how it's gonna be. So it's another plane. Um, We'll see how that sounds, dear audience. Um, But when you switch to the 20th dynasty in particular, a little bit of the 19th Mm -hmm. and certainly the 21st dynasty, the institution that's keeping people safe is the temple. And everyone wants to show, oh, I'm a priest of almond. And I I can hang with the other priests of Amun and I know this text and I know this esoteric mm-hmm. image and I've been initiated into this level it's like claiming that your level whatever of Scientology or whatever interesting cult that you're a part of doesn't matter we're all in cults me too and if if you're able to show your own um, uh, level of reading mm-hmm. the more power you potentially have so it's
1: like and we're back, and we're gonna finish up the episode by talking about coffin reuse, which is a hot topic right now. I think kind Kara's of favorite topic perhaps. Maybe. Maybe, at least right now. Maybe you're over it because you're writing the book, but
0: uh, I gotta do it this summer. I gotta get through it. It has to happen. But anyway.
1: But so the last stage in in coffin commerce, when we're thinking about the lifespan of a coffin, is its reuse and usurpation by other people. And I think think, at least in maybe a more modern context, we think of this as something negative, right, that it's something that's not condoned. Um, How do you see this playing out in ancient Egypt? Do you think this was totally okay practice to go into your, you know, your grandma's tomb and and use her coffin? Would she be okay with that? Is it a memorial, in a sense, right, that you're using grandma's wood and grandpa's wood to make a new coffin?
0: There's so many ways to look at this reuse. It's a really complicated topic. And the the coolest thing about reuse is that one of the first instances I found shows seven generations between the making of the coffin and the reuse. But like that's like I don't know, to me it's like that's beautiful. It's right. Like, it's
1: like using your grandma's diamond to you know, you in a new setting and
0: the ones where I think they knew each other mm-hmm. are mother daughter or mother-grandmother. And there it's closer. So then if you retain a name on a coffin, and there are Mm -hmm. two instances with with names that I think could prove affiliation. One is absolutely proved and it's in the Met and it's the coffin of Tabachnet Nani. Nani is the reuser and Tabachnet is her mother and they're proved mother daughter on their funerary papyrus. And so there you keep the name of the mother on the sides and then you put the name of the daughter there up front and center. And it's a way of being married in mom's coffin, like an heirloom wedding mm-hmm. dress or a ring. And I think that's absolutely on point. There's another one in the Vatican that's um, uh, well, um, who are the coffin? Uh, Mddeet is the older woman, and then the reuser is oh my goodness, I can't remember. Ichi. I knew I remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter, doesn't. But the reuser <laughs> yeah. is Ichi. Mddeet and Ichi are both Libyan names.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're weird names. And yeah. when you look them up in Ranka's nomen, yeah. as we do, um, you see that they're Libyan names. And so I suspect affiliation there, and I suspect that they were reused on purpose for a female member from another female family member. But when reuse was new mm-hmm. and they were first doing it, I think that they wanted to wait an appropriate amount of time. They also had a whole bunch of coffins to yeah. take from. Because if you have a family tomb, you have a family sepulchre and a berry chamber that's filled with coffins. You're going to have dozens of coffins to choose from. You're not going to take grandma's coffin right no. away because you know grandma. Yeah, you wanna You're going to take great, great grandma's mm-hmm. coffin. So it's no problem. You, do There's you know distance. your great, great grandmother? You yeah. Any idea who she is? No, no, nor do I. And so it's easier to pull that coffin out, take the body out. Make sure you bring a magician in or a priest or mm-hmm. somebody to make sure the angry dead don't come and get you. Yeah. And then pull that coffin out and refashion it, replaster it, repaint it update it like we would a kitchen or a bathroom mm-hmm. today and use it for the the dead, and then the other key thing is that when I talk about reuse some people get really upset. and say the Egyptians would never do this people wouldn't do this, this is not the way this should work, they, they would mm-hmm. never and I say actually this is the only moral solution. If the materials entrap you yeah force you to do things, because the materials now demand certain things mm-hmm. from you then you now have no choice but to take any materials that you can get because to transform your mother who's just died you've got to have a, a coffin to do to that network. in you yeah. have to so it's the only moral solution in a time period of stress and scarcity and so i i don't see it as as immoral i see it as the the best and and so most right thing to do
1: we see reuse in you know statuary and Monuments. So you think it's playing out differently? I do. That it's not the same kind of cause?
0: I think that when we see statue reuse or temple reuse or usurpation, use that word, that's Mm -hmm. like claiming it, like taking the old person and claiming it for myself, Mm -hmm. more of a political sort of claim. I think if we look at coffin reuse through that kind of lens, it's it's problematic. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work because these rulers are not necessarily related to each other when they're reusing. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Or they want to claim. Some or they want to claim what they've yeah. done yep. right, so if they want to claim what they've done or let's say let's take Ramses II reusing all, so many statues of Amenhotep the third, which is mm-hmm. a pretty typical thing. When he's doing that Amenhotep the third, in my opinion, does not have a good reputation in Egypt because he is the father of Akhenaten. He's the progenitor of all of the strife that happened at the end of the 18th dynasty, mm-hmm. all of that social upheaval. He's the one that started all that Aten bullshit. And so the III, when Ramses II took his stuff, they're like,
1: no one cares. Please
0: go I ahead, take all of his stuff. So it's a way of erasing and claiming that you wouldn't do in the context of a family. You would keep that family member respected yeah you would and you're using a family tomb at this time and too. you're using the same family tomb so, that their body might actually be in still there. you don't want to piss them off mm-hmm. so it's going to be done in a very different kind of way which is why some coffin experts like andre navinsky use the word usurpation and i don't think that's the right term and i follow daniel pultz mm-hmm. and use the word reuse yeah. i think that that works better it's a much more generalized term and
1: well, it's almost like you need the coffin to do the the magic
0: yes right you need that box to
1: yeah. transform into an osiris or or Ra or whatever yeah and so you can just borrow it make tailor it to kind of make it good for you and then you wait maybe a couple generations and then it gets well
0: borrowed. it's even again but jordan and you know this and you're teaming me up for this but it gets even more interesting than that because there there may even be a kind of coffin rental mm. going on so there are coffins that That's have cool. a blank But that blank for the name is varnished over and varnish is this slick surface that's kind of like the modern day wipey board right Mm -hmm. the dry erase pen, and so you could write a name over that varnish bury the dead person to the funeral have the funeral do all of the conspicuous consumption all of the show with the mourning women and all of the stuff and then take the body out of the coffin put it in the tomb take the coffin back so nobody because sees it funeral... and then with a the damp cloth wipe it away over the varnish and you're good Post to go funeral
1: do we need a coffin no no one sees it no one knows right if the tomb's closed no one's going in there
0: 20th Dynasty, your stuff? actually 19th Dynasty, they start to develop a new kind of burial chamber called the sloping entrance. Mm-hmm. So instead of a shaft that goes down multiple really stories, super hard to get into, very defensive, they've got this easy in, easy out, like they're constantly going in and out of Open. the burial chamber. Yeah. And, and so it's a it's their family sepulcher that it has ingress and egress constantly. And you, you have to think of it, that way this mm-hmm. th- there are other defensive mechanisms um but the coffin when well, we see less funerary goods in general right oh um, they 18th don't yeah to 19th we're not
1: seeing clothes and furniture and all this stuff that that's a brilliant defensive
0: tomb. mechanism if it's you put there, a whole bunch steal. of clothes in your tomb you better seal that shit up because yep. everyone's going to come and take your linen sell it get market. some bed sheets of nice fine oh, yeah. thread count you can make shirts out of that you can yep. make tunics you can do all kinds of things you do not want that stuff sell just in your bank. tomb no That's an 18th dynasty time of incredible wealth, 19th and 20th. You can't you can't do that. So the best defensive strategy is to make the tomb all about the religious um, containment and that's it. But rent rent a coffin, I think, was a thing
1: Love that. I think it was a thing. So coffin commerce doesn't talk about royal coffins.
0: No, because there are so few royal coffins that I can really get at in terms of creation. Mm -hmm. I don't have Texts that talk about how they were made. I certainly don't know how much they were they cost. But the biggest problem you want to really know why is because I can't get my hands on them because royal coffins like really what do we have? We have Tudankamen, we have the Tanis coffins, mm-hmm. and they're really sarcophagi or metal yeah, containers. Exactly. But the coffins from the Dhar El 320 cache are all stripped and so problematized Mm -hmm. from the amount of damage that's been given to them it's really hard for me to do this kind of work with those royal coffins
1: but what we have looked at from like the ucla coffins project Mm -hmm. when we were able to go and Mm -hmm. look at stuff are we seeing reuse or is it even just more complicated because there are bodies that have been moved to probably a non-royal coffin at some point and these coffins are all being bodies are being moved around and
0: most of the royalty can't even say it's
1: their actual
0: no coffin most of the kings are put into coffins that are non-royal yeah. that are renamed and redone and made into a royal coffin like a a hole is sunk here and a uraeus is added that cobra that's rising and other things are added there are only a few like two or three that are buried in royal coffins mm-hmm. and They don't necessarily belong to them. So the coffin of Ramses II, so-called coffin of Ramses II, is a post Amarna coffin. Ramses II is 19th Dynasty, this coffin is late 18th Dynasty, and it's clear, stylistically, you can just look at it and you can tell. It's a royal coffin, it's made of cedar, it's beautiful, but it's not Ramses II's. So whose is it? Don't know. How do i do the, this work if i don't even know whose it is and how it works and it's yeah. it's very very problematic even messier yeah yep. coffin of Tutmus the is totally stripped on the outside and inside and was it originally his i still don't know and coffin of tutmas the has been reused by the high priest of amun panedjam the and i it's covered by it's additional reused. decoration yep. so i can't really talk about that either it's hard and Tutankhamun, if I could get my hands on those and do a clear analysis yeah. and really work on that, that would be great. But everyone wants to get their hands yeah. on Tutankhamun's pieces. And One, well, I feel like no one yeah. wants
1: to hear it, that maybe it was reused.
0: To, but they, we've proven that Tutankhamun yeah. is reused, and Most we, of it. Egyptology, yes. and not me, because I haven't done this. But a lot of his stuff is not his. No. Yeah. And if you're interested in this, look at Nicholas Reeves' work on Tutankhamun's mask in particular, and on the mask, the cartouche. particularly the one on the side of the shoulder, where the mask goes over the shoulder, shows the traces of a longer cartouche and an older name. Mm -hmm. And the traces of the name Ankhepru are visible under the Nebhepru Ray of Tutankhamen. And who is that? Um, Ankhepru Re is probably Nefertiti as Mm co-king. And so I just told you that the mask of Tutankhamen is not Tutankhamen, so you better follow that up with, a quick search in the show notes of the Nicholas Reeves yeah. article. Yeah, it won't be the last it. time we put that one in no, the show notes. Be a, That'll be there all the time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but so, do you see? We talked about user reuse yes. being <laughs> kind of. Correct myself. Yeah. Reuse being condoned, yeah. perhaps as something that's you know not people were doing like on the sly as something as something negative. Well, perhaps they, for the elites, but then for the kings, do you think it's a different something else is going on or is there a did you not want to it to be known that you were reusing someone's coffin or. Does the no, king have to get new stuff
0: and, nobody talks specifically about reuse in a textual yeah. fashion and there's only a few texts that kind of suggest something's going on mm-hmm. like um, there's there's a text called console in and the ghost. And this high priest of Amun is getting haunted by this dude Konsumehab, and the only way he can get him to stop haunting him is to give him give him a coffin set, and he puts the mummy in the coffin set, and then he gets and then he's not haunted anymore. And this is a Ramessid period text, probably a late Ramessid period text, so it is on point mm-hmm. that the ancient Egyptians had anxiety about all of this reuse. Okay. But you never find a text that says reused a coffin today. You're never going to find that. But what I do have is that. From all of the receipts and workshop Mm -hmm. records from Western Thebes, you have more evidence for decoration like four to one Mm -hmm. evidence of decoration than carpentry actually this might even be higher. Which means that they're doing a whole lot of decorating and not a whole lot of carpentry and the only way that that could really make sense and it took me a good decade to figure this out. And I have in my first book, the cost of death, Oh, the Daryl Medina craftsman created a niche in coffin decoration and we're getting the coffins from somewhere else. I now think that is absolute BS and that they're instead using. it's a time period of reuse because of the lack of wood yeah. tree stands cut down tree stands burned, tree stands used for something else
1: not important. Wood is yeah. not
0: available and so they're reusing wood and there's a whole lot of decoration going on, and the reason the only reason I would argue that Daryl Medina guys are involved in coffin decoration at all is because the raw materials are there in western Thebes yeah. otherwise and they have to make a living and they have to make a living but they're there they're in ground zero of I can't get a coffin I don't have any coffin yeah. wood. they're like we got one it's really you know I can fix it up I'll replaster wood. it and repaint yeah. it it'll be fine people are like okay I'll take yeah. that so they do and like great grandma like mm. who she
1: Mm-mm.
0: doesn't matter yeah there's there's a tremendous there's still so much wealth mm-hmm. in ancient Thebes. And you still hear and read about things being discovered, You know, 40 coffins found in, yep. in Luxor, West Bank, this found in Luxor, that found in Saqqara. There's still so much to be found in these graveyards. And if you were a Daryl Medina artisan who knew where all the tombs were, particularly the royal tombs, oh, yeah. then you were sitting on top of the knowledge to just get bank faults worth wow. of fungible goods.
1: Mm-hmm. Could break apart and no one wouldn't even know it was so-and-so's coffin
0: yeah
1: so if you're interested in more coffin reuse talk uh kara has a longer video on her youtube page so you can check that out we'll put that in the show notes and we'll probably do another I think episode so. on reuse at some point it's my favorite it's, topic and i'm writing cool the topic book and somewhere. i was just gonna say there's a new book yeah at some point coming called recycling for death so it's gonna we'll be
0: very picture heavy it'll we'll yeah. talk about
1: Probably a lot of, more about that so.
0: yeah maybe we will show you some of what we're working on, because I mean we're annotating all the little different parts, mm-hmm. maybe i'll show it to you in process, That would be fun. So, we'll so I have a
1: fun question to wrap us up.
0: Mm-hmm. So, as
1: you you kind of already said it, but if you could look at any coffin that's not tight, but obviously tight would be like the creme de la creme. But if you look at any other coffin that's not tight.
0: that's now been destroyed. That it's I been can't destroyed, get to or yeah like we're in my time imaginary machine.
1: time machine that
0: you'd want to see that you think would be like give you I think I either go for Ramses II or his son Merneptah
1: mm-hmm.
0: because we have like Merneptah we have so much information one of his sarcophagi was brought to Tanis to bury Susanes the First and there's remnants of two other nesting sarcophagi in his tomb. Yeah. So he had three stone, stone yeah. hard stone sarcophagi. We're talking about granodiorite nested inside one another with lids inside one yeah. another. I wanna know if that coffin was of solid gold. And the reason is like Ramses II and Renepta, and this is Nick Brown's dissertation, another UCLA graduate student. The reason perhaps that we don't have any coffins preserved for the 19th or 20th mm-hmm. dynasty kings and we and Ramses iI is buried in a post Marrna wooden cedar coffin is one could argue those coffins are made of solid gold and can you melt them down and you melt it's them gone. down they're not going to be yeah. preserved well, so the
1: uh Tana stuff is all silver
0: silver um, and a lot of golden masks mm-hmm. and other things so. so and all of that stuff is reused I yeah. guarantee you it all comes from thebes. Yep. I guarantee but gold yes if only we could take a little A little chemical analysis gun, and say the gold came from here, but it's all going to end up coming from the Eastern Desert Nubia anyway. So it's not going to be, or to say when it was
1: remelted and they add new stuff, and it's chemicals.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, One last thing. There was once this. I gave a talk about reuse, and this one dude was like, "Gold, you cannot reuse gold," and I was like oh my goodness no it's the easiest thing to reuse it's, so it's incredibly soft. soft i could probably reuse it with just like my fingernails so that's what and I'm like... Mask. it's like you could probably just have <laughs> yeah. smushed the you, gold you just foil you just and... smush it over and then re-etch it and you're good to go it's a very easy medium to use and use and use again awesome.
1: so we'll end on that gold egypt um <laughs> if you have any questions for future episodes we're going to try to do listener questions we'll uh-huh. take at the end so um please submit them to uh Kara's website it's Cara Cooney at square face square squarespace.com. <laughs> um and check out Kara's other handles Facebook Twitter Instagram YouTube follow like handles. um we'll be putting this onto other podcasting sites so thank you all for listening and thank you thank for you for talking about your recent uh Coffin Commerce book
0: it was so much fun Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakoni at gmail.com. You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakoni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni.